Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. We are in uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter four. <clears throat> uh, I know we began the chapter last week. I can't quite remember where we left off. So let's just do a little bit of summary, summarizing, and then uh, choose uh, to start perhaps about verse 11. Uh, Jesus, um, and I would ask you if you're interested in doing this in following the map that I've provided for you in page five of the notes, if you have those accessible. I wanna remind you, I think I said this last week, where we are in the Gospel of John, it's important, again, if, if you're interested in this, I'm very interested in it, so I'm just gonna quickly summarize it. Do you have an idea of the geography? Um, so if you're looking again at that map, or just if you just think about it, in the Southern end of the map, the lower end of the map, is Judea, that's the Roman province of Judea, <clears throat> which had become a Roman province in AD 6. Immediately to its north is Samaria, and then immediately to the north of that is Galilee. And as was typical in the first century, Jews did not want anything to do with Samaria. And I explained that last week, but I'll quickly say it again. That was the result, that area was the result of when the Assyrian Empire conquered Israel the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, they um, exported, took into exile tens of thousands of Jews and put in their place a variety of people from uh, parts of the Assyrian Empire. If you go to the book of, of uh, First and Second Kings, they explained to you where they all came from. But anyway, so they're Gentiles and the remaining Jews that were in that area intermarried with them, hence the Samaritans. Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds, not pure Jews. And uh, the Roman Empire had incorporated Samaria into Judea for purposes of ruling it. But in terms of the cultural uh, differences between Judea and Samaria, uh, there was no connection whatsoever. And Jews would habitually avoid Samaria. They would not walk through it. It was very typical for people that were Jews in Galilee to come down to Judea to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, Feast of Dedication, uh, etc. during the Jewish, Jewish, uh, Jewish holiday season. And for Jews to go from Judea up to Galilee, they would either walk the King's Highway, which was to the east, basically through the mountains of Jordan, or they'd walk along the Via Maris, which is a road, international highway right along the Mediterranean Sea. Both of those would meet in Damascus uh, in the north. But anyway, so Jesus, and this is what's really striking, it says in verse 4 of John 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, what that means is, if I can put it in, in the terms of theology, it was the Father's will that his son go through Samaria. And so Jesus is therefore doing that in obedience to his father, and he goes to Sychar. You can find that on your map. Uh, it's really not very far into Samaria from Judea. Uh, and Jacob's well, historically Jacob's well is there. It's still there today. It's 100 feet deep. It's a functioning well today. If you would go to Israel with me, I'd show you that. It's, uh, it's actually in Palestinian territory, but you can still get to it fairly easily. And it's about noon. We also learned last week that his disciples, Jesus' disciples, had gone into town to get some food. 
So Jesus is at the well, Jacob's well, and a Samaritan woman, verse 7, comes to the well to draw water. I explained to you last week, this is very instructive, because the women of any town in the ancient Near Eastern world, in, in the morning, they would go to the wells to get water for the day. However, this woman goes at noon, which means she's ostracized, which means she is 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 has no relationships with the town women. And so we will learn in the conversation with Jesus, she's a very immoral woman, possibly, although this isn't certain, possibly a prostitute, but nonetheless, she's a very immoral woman. And that's why she goes at noon to get her water for the day. And then Jesus asks her for a drink in verse 7. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And again, I, I stressed this last week, that phrase living water comes from Exodus, excuse me, comes from Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. I will refer to that again in just a moment. Now, here's where I want to pick up. The woman then said to him, verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw your water with, and the well is deep. As I mentioned, about 100 feet deep. And so she is, now listen, it's a very important sentence. She is thinking at the temporal, physical level of things in reality. Jesus is speaking at the eternal, transcendent, heavenly perspective on reality. Those two realities have to come together. That's what Jesus did with Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again. His response was at the temporal, physical dimension of reality. Jesus was speaking, you must be born again. You must experience the spiritual uh, rebirth through the Holy Spirit at the eternal, at the eternal, uh, infinite, the transcendent realms of reality. Jesus has to do the same thing for this woman. He has to get her to think about eternal things. But he uses water as an example to get her to think differently about her life. Where will you get that living water? Verse 12, this is the woman continuing. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now remember, she's a Samaritan, but Jacob's well is in Samaria, and so they, the Samaritans, looked at the history, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., as legitimate. They're a part of that heritage. So she can claim Jacob as her ancestor. Verse 13. Jesus then responds, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. Now again, let me drive home the point. She is thinking at the temporal, physical realm of things. Jesus is getting her, trying to get her to think of the eternal, heavenly, spiritual, transcendent reality of things. Those two must come together. And Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, brings them together. Continuing then, I'm, I'm in verse 14. The water that I will give him will become like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Jesus is alluding to Isaiah 12, 13 there. But you see what he's trying to do? Getting her to stop thinking about physical, temporal things, start thinking about eternal, heavenly, spiritual things. So eternal life is not a physical, temporal concept. It is an infinite, eternal, spiritual concept. He's saying to her, what I'm offering you is not physical water that satisfies your thirst for a couple of hours. I'm talking about spiritual water that will satisfy you for eternity. So she's getting his attention, he is getting her attention. So she responds in verse 15. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. All right, she's taken a step, but she's still thinking at the physical and temporal level things. I don't like coming here every noon. It's hot. It's dry. I don't want to do this. So please give me this water. So what does Jesus do? He changes the subject. And in changing the subject, he wants to demonstrate to her and confront her with her real need. It isn't a physical need. It isn't a need to get water to sustain life for a few more hours. You have an eternal need. So he asks her to do something. In verse 16, Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. Now again, he changes the subject. They weren't talking about her marriage. They weren't talking about her husband. They were talking about, they were talking about water. What is Jesus doing as he changes the subject? He wants her to focus on where her real need is. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What does Jesus do? Well, in doing this, he exposes her shame her guilt, her despair, her need. The only way we can conclude, the only thing we can conclude from verse 16, excuse me, verse 18. Now, I don't want to go, I don't want to take too big of a leap here because the text doesn't say this. But I think it is correct to infer that this is a very immoral woman. To say she's a prostitute, I think that's going too far in terms of the text. But at least we can say she's a very immoral woman because Jesus is saying, even the one you're now living with is not your husband. To use 21st century language, she's cohabiting. And so Jesus is not chastising her. He's not judging her. He's just saying, because he's omniscient, because he's the Lord, he tells her about her life. What you have said is true. The Lord ends his point to her. So now what is the woman going to do? He's changed the subject. He's fostered and surfaced an understanding of her real need. And so she's going to respond 
not by admitting her shame or guilt or despair. She's going to say, verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, that's like, duh. But he just told her a whole bunch of things about her life that she didn't know he knew about. So for her to respond, I perceive you're a prophet, it's like, okay, that's obvious. <laughs> you're declaring something that indicates you are from God. You're telling me things that no one else knows that's a Jew. You're telling me things that only a handful of people in my little community know, but you're telling me everything about my life. Verse 20, now listen very carefully. Our fathers, now she's talking about her Samaritan fathers. Her Samaritan ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Now the mountain that is uh, that she's referring to is Mount Gerizim. And if you are following on your map, the one that I gave you on page five, and you found Sychar, immediately to the west, or if you don't know directions, immediately to the left, you see Mount Gerizim. So she said, we worship there, which is right. After the Samaritan situation developed, they were no longer welcome in Jerusalem because they're half-breeds. So they began to develop a worship center on Mount Gerizim, which was one of the mountains on which, during the time of Moses and during the time of Joshua, the Israelites of the conquest stood on those mountains and made a vow to God. So that has very significant spiritual heritage, significant spiritual heritage of the Jews, and the Samaritans claim that. You can't let us go to Jerusalem anymore, so we're going to make our own holy mountain. It's Mount Gerizim. But you say, I'm continuing in verse 20, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. All right, now let's stop at verse 20 and assess where we are. Jesus has gotten this woman to focus on her real spiritual need. He's getting her to think about eternal things. And she says, you're a prophet. But what she wants to discuss is the different places and forms of worship between the Samaritans and the Jews. We worship on Mount Gerizim. You worship in Jerusalem. Jesus won't let her do that. He's not interested in having a debate between the theological differences of the Samaritans and the Jews. He wants to keep getting her to think about eternal spiritual things as it relates to her. So Jesus says, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Not stop for a minute there. Please notice that Jesus is focusing on the Father. And he uses a phrase, the hour is coming, which is a phrase used in the prophets of the Old Testament to talk about the coming of the new covenant era. That's how Jeremiah talks about it. That's how Isaiah talks about it. So Jesus is now speaking in new covenant language. Not the language of the old covenant, but new covenant. The hour is coming 
when geography of worship will be irrelevant, where it doesn't matter where you worship. Now, the new covenant is associated not with the Old Testament, the Mosaic covenant, the law, sacrifices, Yom Kippur, Passover. No, the hour is coming when geography is irrelevant. Verse 22. Now, verse 22 begins with you worship. The you there, Y-O-U, is plural. It's not singular. You worship what you do not know. So what the Lord is saying there is you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, meaning the Jews, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So here Jesus is challenging her spiritual doctrinal understanding of things. You worship what you do not know. You do not know and have a personal relationship with the Heavenly Father. Because remember, the whole mission of the Jews, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, is that in you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. That is a promise of salvation. And Jesus declares forthrightly and correctly, salvation is from the Jews. Because as you already know, the first, Jesus is a Jew. Jesus will die a substitutionary death as a Jew. He will offer salvation to the world as a Jew. Continuing, but the hour is coming. There's that phrase again out of the Old Testament prophets and is now here. Very important. This new covenant era prophesied in the prophets. It is here. Meaning what? I'm here to inaugurate this new covenant era when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now the phrase there is spirit and truth. It's not about geography. It's not about a mountain. It's about your relationship with the Heavenly Father based on spirit, because he's going to tell us in the next verse, God is spirit, and truth. Not based on half-truths, not based on lies, not based on mythology, not based on what you Samaritans have done in prostituting, uh, that is, that is um, demeaning and, and, and letting error creep into the truths about God. No, in spirit and truth, because the Father is seeking people to worship him, because verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so Jesus is saying, geography isn't the issue. Your relationship with the Heavenly Father is the issue, and the hour is coming when this geographical difference will be abolished, and what matters is spirit, is worship in spirit and truth, because God is spirit and truth. So now the woman, it's an amazing, it's an amazing end to this dialogue. The woman says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. 
Now, the Samaritans, and by the way, there are still Samaritans today, there are about 350 of them. They still live outside of, of Sychar, Shechem. It has a lot of different names to it. And they still worship on Mount Gerizim. They still offer sacrifices on Mount Gerizim. But anyway, that's not relevant to the text. But they do believe in a Messiah. Um, in Aramaic, they call him the Chacheb. So the Samaritans, this woman, the town she comes from, are expecting the coming of the Messiah, and then he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Rarely, rarely does Jesus Christ say so boldly and directly, I am the Messiah. He so often will say, well, look at my works. Does that prove anything to you? Listen to what I say. And yet here, he boldly, forthrightly to this Samaritan, not a Jew, to this Samaritan, not a Pharisee, to this Samaritan, not one of his disciples, so directly, I am the Messiah. And so Jesus has taken this woman from thinking about a physical need, water to satisfy thirst, to think about eternal things, alluding to Ezekiel chapter uh, uh, 36, verse 25 through 27, about the, the living water, to the Messiah, to the hour is coming, to I am the Messiah that you're looking for and that the Jews are looking for. So this is an extraordinary dialogue. It's one of the most, to me, one of the most stunning dialogues in all of the Gospels. Because what Jesus is saying and dealing with and dialoguing with and revealing to this woman is absolutely extraordinary. And so he's moved this woman from being a Samaritan unbeliever to a believer, because as we're going to read in verse 39 and following, she goes back to town and tells everybody that the Messiah is outside of town. And we'll see what happens there in just a minute. All right, now, I want to, I want to stop here and see if you have any questions, because what happens next is there's a dialogue between Jesus and his disciples who come back from McDonald's where they got lunch in Sychar to concluding with what happens to the Samaritans uh, to whom this woman goes and explains to them that she's found the Messiah. All right. Now, I was really going full, full bust there. I have a question, uh, Jim. Uh, yeah. Most often, people heard about Jesus. You can tell me if I'm correct. Most often, they heard about people... Uh, they heard about Jesus through other people were saying that he's coming, that he's, that he's here. Uh, and they tell them, they tell about Jesus. But uh, like you said, this is fairly rare where he identifies himself. And maybe it's the only place in the Bible, is it? Where he identifies himself as the Messiah? It's, uh, it isn't the only place uh, in the Gospels, but as you correctly said, and, and I tried to say a moment ago, it's rare. It's rare for Jesus to be so boldly directing 
in saying, I, boldly declarative, I am the Messiah. He, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always struck, and you have to um, go back to Matthew to see this, but um, John the Baptist has been put in prison, and he's really rethinking everything, and he sends one of his disciples to go to see Jesus. Are you the one that we should expect? Are you the coming Messiah? And Jesus doesn't answer the question. He says to John, so you go back and tell him that the blind have sight, the deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised. You tell him that. And I always am struck by that, but you think he would say to John the Baptist, who's his cousin, who was his forerunner, yeah, you tell John, absolutely, I am the Messiah. Don't let him have any doubts. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. What he says is to John the Baptist's disciples who go back and tell John that in prison, the Old Testament prophecy said, look for Messiah. He will seal the sick. He will give sight to the blind. He will give sight, uh, hearing to the deaf. He will raise the dead. Jesus just said, you tell John that. That's the evidence you need. This woman is one of the most extraordinary examples, and she's not a Jew. She's a Samaritan. That Jesus boldly, forthrightly declares, I am the Messiah. And so she is one of the most privileged women in all of biblical history to hear from the Son of God the bold declaration and affirmation of who he is. So why does Jesus choose to do it this way? I don't know. But it strikes me always in studying this passage of Scripture how privileged this woman was to have this kind of dialogue with Jesus and it, it impacts her because she becomes the first great missionary. She will lead this whole town out to meet Jesus, and Jesus will spend two full days with them. And you'll see that in just a minute. Now, thank you, Woody. That's good to, good to, to remind us of that. But he was, alone. he was alone at that time. He came. Went he is alone. That's, and, That's right. So there was nobody to advance uh, you know, information about him coming. So there he was just all by himself in the room. That's right. That's right. So, and he lets this woman tell everyone else who he is. Yeah, right. And she'll lead a whole community of Christ. We're going to yeah. see those people in heaven because of this Samaritan woman. Extraordinary. All right. I have a, a, a couple. Uh, you mentioned after the spiritual transcendent reality you gave a scripture reference, Isaiah 12, 13, and my 12 only goes to 6. 12, 3, I'm sorry. Did I say 13? I, maybe I misheard it. So well, it thank 12, you. Isaiah 12, 3, I'm sorry if I thank said you. 13. Yeah. Um, the other question is um, on 424, God, yeah. is, God is spirit, predicate nominative. Um, yeah. Can you uh, go into the um, the word for spirit, um, you know, or refer me to some things that for that word specifically? Whenever I see a predicate nominative in refer, like God is love, um, yeah. it always provokes well, it. Well, it's, it's uh, as I recall, I don't have my Greek text in front of me, mm -hmm. but as I recall, it's pneuma, pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. And what, what is that saying to us? It's saying to us that God is not physical. God doesn't have a body. God doesn't have, you know, physical dimensions or characteristics to him. He is spirit. Uh, that is the, the fundamental 
uh, how do I say this? The this is the breath part, of life um, well, reference? Yeah, out of that, absolutely out of that comes, uh, there are two words, ruach and, and pneuma, those terms are used somewhat interchangeably, um, but that that's correct. He, as spirit, God is also the source of the breath of life, but he's the source of the, of spiritual life. And so, I mean, he's the, he's the author of all life. But God, you see, this is really important because you you don't, and this is very clear in, in the passages in the uh, first two commandments of the of the of the. Ten Commandments, as well as all the condemnations of idolatry. Don't try to assign physical characteristics to God. Don't build uh, uh, out of stone or out of wood or out of clay some kind of image, because you cannot see God. He is spirit. And so he's a, he, Jesus, is affirming that with this woman. And this is really important, too. She is thinking geography. She's thinking Mount Gerizim versus Jerusalem. Jesus won't let her do that. And in the new covenant age, which I am now inaugurating, geography is irrelevant because fundamentally you got to remember God is spirit. And worship, worship is defined by spirit and truth, even in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4 declares that what God is interested in is circumcision of the heart, not just the outward sign of circumcision. I mean, circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But if you just go through the motions, that's irrelevant. See, God is interested in worship that's rooted in spirit and truth. It, it, it's understanding that the sacrificial elements of worship, Yom Kippur, uh, Passover, unleavened, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Day, all those different things that are part of the Old Testament, it, they are meaningless unless they're done in spirit and truth. And they're done from your heart, where you really understand God's taking care of your sin problem. God wants a relationship with you. He's defined how you can have a relationship with him through the sacrificial system, through the keeping of the, et cetera, all of that, but it's still rooted in your heart. This woman is looking just at the externals. Worship to me is on that mountain. And where she where Jacob's well is, she could have looked to the to the west and seen that mountain, probably pointed to it. Jesus is saying, got the wrong idea. You got the wrong idea. Worship, yes, you go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in the temple. But if your heart isn't right, God says in Amos, God says in Hosea, God says in Malachi, keep your sacrifices. I don't want them. Because if you're not doing this out of seriously of the heart and spirit and truth, I don't want them. So Jesus is not saying something new here. He's just declaring it to a Samaritan. Don't be confused about geography. And I'm here to inaugurate the new order, which has nothing to do with geography. There will be no physical temple in the new covenant. Okay, now I'm getting way... Sorry. No, that's all right. I was going way off there, but I hope that was somewhat helpful. All right, I'm going to move on. Verse 27, verse 27. Just then, presumably, John wants us to understand this, as soon as he had said to her, I am who you're speaking, I'm he, I'm the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They, they had a quarter pounder at McDonald's, and they were they weren't seniors, so they couldn't get the senior discount on coffee. But anyway, they came back. 
they marveled that he was talking with a woman. And remember, remember where they are. They're in Samaria. So their marveling is that he was talking to a Samaritan woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, that, which is really interesting. Why does John tell us that? I mean, John was there. He's a disciple. He saw it. Why does he tell her that? Tell us that. That's one of those pieces of historical information. And John chooses to tell us that. It's inspired by the Spirit. It's in the Bible. Does that mean she's in haste? She's so excited that she runs, she even forgets the, the water jar that she brought to get water for herself. Or maybe, maybe she left it so that Jesus would be able to get a drink. Because at first of all, he asked her, and I'm thirsty, give me a drink. So it's just one of those intriguing historical details that John chooses to tell us this. And went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I'd ever did. Can this be the Tachev? Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? So they went out of the town and were coming to him. So this is really, man, this is really, really remarkable. Here's this Samaritan, now a missionary. She went back to the town where she was ostracized. She was kind of the the epitome of immorality in this town. Nobody wanted anything to do with her. And she tells the people of Sychar, I think I found the Messiah. Can it be? And so we'll see. We'll pick up that down in verse 39. But in 31, 38, there's a little discussion Jesus has with the disciples. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. Now, remember, they had gone to town, got some food, brought it back, so they went to eat. And Jesus says, now and again, look at his words. I have food to eat that you do not know about. As Jesus did with Nicodemus, you must be born again if you're going to understand the things of the kingdom. Nicodemus thinking at the physical, temporal level, you mean I got to go back in my mother's room? No, 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 no. You got to think of eternal spiritual things. Woman at the well. Thirsty, Mount Gerizim, you're only thinking of, of temporal, physical things. I want you to think about eternal, spiritual things. He's doing the same thing with the disciples. You guys are thinking about spiritual, uh, physical food. I'm thinking about spiritual, eternal sustenance. I'm talking about food that will not sustain your life for a couple of hours. I'm talking about eternal life. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? They're still thinking at the physical, temporal level. Jesus responded, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, the mission of the Messiah the man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so he doesn't say that. But these are students of the Old Testament. They might begin to understand he's not talking about physical food. 
Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes. Remember that important verse. Do not, do you not say, verse 35, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, see that the fields are white for harvest. Already. Now, this is very hard. It's not easy in the first reading. So let me read it. And we'll come back and talk about it. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that over, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you do not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. This is hard language. But stick with me. I've already established, as he did with Nicodemus, and he did with the Samaritan woman, he's now dealing with his disciples. Stop thinking about physical, temporal things alone. Start thinking about eternal, spiritual things. Everything that sustains life goes into the mouth. But man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I want you to stop thinking about physical things. I want you to think about eternal and spiritual things, even when it comes to the harvest. Already, verse 36. Now that's an announcement. That's a pronouncement. That's a declaration. Things are changing. One who reaps, receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Jesus is, this is very important. Jesus is alluding to Amos 9.13, which is a description of the coming messianic age, when the one who sows the crop, and months later, the one who reaps and harvests the crops, rejoice together. Why? For the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. John the Baptist has labored. The prophets have labored. And you have entered into their labor. Men, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. You are entering eternally significant work. You are no longer sowing and reaping for food that you will eat to sustain your life for a few more hours. You are sowing and reaping for human souls. You are sowing and reaping for eternity. What was begun by the prophets and John the Baptist, you're joining them in this eternally significant work. Jesus said to Peter, you will fish for men. Here he's saying to the disciples, you're going to sow and reap for human souls. You are joining in the harvest for eternity. You are joining in the harvest by declaring people don't live by bread alone. They need the eternal word of God that points them to the message of salvation. You are joining in that work. So you see what Jesus has done? He's moved using a, the figure of speech of just getting food, moving them from thinking temporal, thinking physical, to thinking eternal and thinking spiritual. They have now joined the work of the kingdom. 
and they they're going to get this. I don't know if they got it at this point. I don't know if they understood it. But because of what happens in verse 39, 40, and 41, Jesus is just showing them this is how you do it. Because then all these Samaritans come, and these disciples watch this. Let me read it. So the Samaritans came, so many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. They heard those, they heard her say that. They flock out to the well to hear Jesus because they believe what she said. Then they start to put their belief in Jesus. So when the Samaritans came to him, verse 40, they asked him to stay. And he stayed there for two days. 48 more hours. They have the Messiah teaching and preaching and declaring to them the truths of the new covenant era, which he's inaugurating. And now listen, what Jesus had just said to the disciples, they are now witnessing it. They're watching it. They're seeing it. Wow. I understand what he's saying. We are being involved now in the harvest of human souls. And it even applies to the Samaritans. And many more believe, verse 41, because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves. Now look at the end of verse 42. This is shocking. Because this comes from the mouth of Samaritans. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This didn't come from Peter's mouth. This didn't come from John's mouth. This came from Samaritans of the little community of Sychar, east of Jacob's well. They experienced the salvation of the Messiah. They believed in him. He's the Savior of the world. Now remember, the disciples are seeing this. They're hearing this after Jesus has told them, you are now participating in the harvest of eternal souls. That's your work now. We're sowing and reaping is no longer a physical temporal task. It's now a spiritual, eternal task. You are involved in harvesting souls for the coming kingdom. And they saw what Jesus did in this little Samaritan town. And they heard the Samaritan say, this is indeed the Savior of the world. Isn't this remarkable? I mean, this is an astonishing passage of Scripture. It's a mind-blowing passage of Scripture. Because everything Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus is now being applied to the Samaritans who declare he's the Savior of the world. So, I mean, this is, is, I get really excited about this. Uh, You probably aren't as excited about it as I am, but it's just, it's, it's, it's really quite stunning what Jesus has done here. And it's the disciples to watch this and hear this. They're beginning to understand who Jesus is. They're beginning to understand what he's going to want them to do. They're beginning to understand he is the Messiah who is inaugurating the new era called the new covenant. It's just, it's, it's wonderful. So you got it? Any questions? Yeah. Uh, go, go ahead. Ahead. I was just uh, going to ask of the, of the 350 Samaritans that are worshiping near Sychar today, yes. um, do the thing that strikes me in this moment is 
you wish you could have been a fly on the wall for those two days. Oh, absolutely. Is, is, there, is, there, is there any literature that, did they record any of this? Did, not that I'm aware of. Hmm. Not that I'm aware of, no. That was it. Thanks. I would love to have that. <laughs> Somebody get their camera out. <laughs> yeah. what, what a weekend retreat that would be, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. I guess what's significant for me is yes. so in two days, <clears throat> the whole town effectively converted. Apparently, yes. Three years of the Israelis just totally in denial. Through through his mission work. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, uh, you're saying something that's astonishing, and it's that contrast between how non-Jews are responding to Jesus and how Samaritans are responding to Jesus. Right, and that is one of the reasons why Jesus. Now, many, many, many Jews in Galilee and in Judea do respond to Jesus, but the vast majority presumably do not. And that's why Jesus will say a couple of times, it's spread throughout the four Gospels, but I haven't found faith like this in Israel. He will say of the, the, the when he's way up in the Tyre area, which is a Phoenician area, some woman will scream out to him, son of David, and he will say, I've not found faith like this in Israel. Now, there is that contrast between how the Jews of the first century in Galilee and Judea are responding to Jesus and how people outside of the covenant, the, the, the you know, Abraham covenant, the Jews, are responding. So and it, it's really, it's a significant contrast that is set up throughout the gospel accounts. That's, and that's right. Here's a, here's a very remarkable contrast. So it's not, I think, go, ahead, go, ahead, go ahead, Glenn. Go ahead, Glenn. It, it's not until the, the third year then that the crowds just overwhelmed him and he would go to the other side of the lake? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's coming up actually here in the next uh, couple chapters of John. That that's coming up, and that's going to be in John chapter six. It's going to tell us they're up in the North Shore of Galilee, see Galilee. They want to make him king, and Jesus dismisses them and refuses to talk to them. Why? Because then their view of their king is a bread king, who's going to do what he did in feeding the five thousand every day, and they're going to just wow, we're going to follow this guy over the place. And they have a totally prostituted, distorted, perverted view of Messiah. Messiah is not a bread king who's going to meet the belly needs you have every day. Well, and the disciples wrestle with that. They do. They, have to act. they do. Absolutely. I mean, this is hard. This is hard for these disciples to process everything Jesus is saying and doing. I mean, this really is. That's why you, you can't dismiss verse 31 through 38 don't that's not an aside that is integral to what's going on jesus does the same thing with them he did with nicodemus and did with this woman and then you they see the impact of what jesus is saying we have just harvested harvested a whole bunch of souls from samaria the people you don't want anything to do with and they will be the ones that will declare this guy's the savior of the world i mean that's just that to me, that is absolutely mind-blowing. One that, of the things... You know, Samaritans declaring this. One of the things that I, I see that pattern throughout over and over in Scripture, like these other people are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. And one of the things that that strikes me, convicts me of, 
because I'm a knowledge guy, I love to seek out knowledge and just pour it in, is that the greatest barrier to knowledge is the belief that you already possess it. So the Sanhedrin thought they had it all figured out and they just watched Jesus walk by because, hey, we got it all figured out already. They lost, they centered on pride and what they knew before and started relying on themselves. So I always take that as a warning, right? That you're going to miss something really big. And here's the Samaritans, you know, or the, you know, the prostitutes and the tax collectors that are all going, I get it, I get it, you know, because they're open vessels. And and it's part of it too is you're right. I mean, the pride of the Sanhedrin, members of the Sanhedrin, versus the humility of this woman. Jesus absolutely, absolutely. I hope you understand the way I'm absolutely destroyed this woman. He shredded her, but he did it in a loving way. He did it in a compassionate way, showing your real need is not water. Your real need is the eternal life I offer you. But you have to come to the realization of your need. Uh, how many, go get your husband. And that immediately he changes the subject. He's exposing her real need. And that's unless you are willing to allow the Lord humbly to deal with you, your pride and your arrogance, you're going to miss it. And yet does not apply to you, Russ. But I'm saying, which your point is, absolutely, we have to always be on guard that our pride and our arrogance doesn't become a barrier to the Lord continuing to teach us dependence on him. We never reach a point of spiritual, okay, I finally made it. I got it. I reached the goal. See you around, Lord. I'll see you in heaven. Not, 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 that's not a, a spiritual life. That, that, that was Lucifer. Hey, move over. Well, yeah, yeah, us. exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on. Verse 43, after the two days, referring to the amount of time he spent with the Samaritans at Sychar, he departed for Galilee. So looking at your map, he heads north. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, which is really, really interesting because Jesus says that about Nazareth. He wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And it's really interesting. John just puts this in parentheses. Unlike Samaria, where I was welcomed, Jesus is not welcomed in his own hometown. We're going to see that coming up later in the gospel. The hometown of Jesus, they don't want anything to do with him. They think he's crazy. So it's just, John's just inserting this little parenthetical thought. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, that takes us back to the earlier chapter when he cleansed the temple and so on, for they too had gone to the feast. So what's this telling us? A number of the Galileans, because remember, Galileans would travel from Galilee down to Jerusalem for the various feasts, and the feast of Passover. So many of those Galileans saw Jesus do that. So there's a welcoming spirit to Jesus because of what he did in cleansing the temple. So where does Jesus go? Verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee. Remember, when John says he came to Cana again in Galilee, he had been there in chapter 2 at the wedding. And if you look on your map, you can see where Cana is. If you find the word lower Galilee, Cana is right above the L. So it's kind of in the southern part of Galilee. But anyway, so he comes again to Cana, where he made the water wine. 
And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, Capernaum is to the east of Cana. It's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's, that looks like it's a big, it really isn't that far of a distance. It, it's pretty close. So Jesus in Cana, uh, an official in Capernaum, son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. Cana is in the mountains of Galilee to go down to Capernaum, is to go down to the shore. You're going low, you're, you're headed down uh, to a low, uh, about oh, 300 feet below sea level. That's what the Sea of Galilee is. And he asked him to go down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Isn't that amazing? Here's this official, as far as we understand, this is probably a Gentile. There's a real possibility. This is the centurion of, Gen, of, of, of uh, Capernaum that we're going to come across later on. But anyway, he, he has enough of faith, enough of an understanding, that he asked Jesus to do a miracle, save the life of his son. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs, by the way, that you there in verse 46, excuse me, verse 48 is plural. It isn't just you, the, the official, it's you, you guys in Galilee, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, that's interesting. That's in contrast to the Samaritan. They heard Jesus teach, they heard Jesus talk, and they believed. Jesus is saying, you guys are looking for the fantastic stuff, signs and wonders. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said, go, your son will live. Notice the next sentence. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, what I'd like you to do is circle verse 47, the word heard, and circle the word believed in verse 50, he's gone from hearing to believing. He heard about Jesus, but he said what he did. Now he believes. I mean, he is in Cana. He came from Capernaum to Cana to talk to Jesus. It's, a, it's, a, it's quite a few miles, not real long, but it's walking. He has to believe that his son, who's over in Capernaum, lives. As he was going down, meaning he's traveling from Cana down to Capernaum, he's going downhill from the mountains of Galilee down to the seashore, north shore, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said the seventh hour of the fever left him. The seventh hour would be about one o'clock in the afternoon. The fever left him. The father knew. That was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. So you go from hearing to believing to greater confidence in his faith. And his whole household comes to know the Savior. Now, if this is the centurion, 
the Roman military officer of Capernaum, this too is extraordinary because this isn't a Jew. And that word of, that the ESV translates as official in verse 46 is not the term used of a religious official. Though in all likelihood, this guy is a Roman. He's a centurion. And what you have is he believed, he heard, he believed, and his confidence and faith is deepened such that his household believes. Verse 54, this was now the second sign Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. The first one being the wedding miracle in Cana that we read about in chapter 2. So chapter 3 and chapter 4 is about Jesus moving people from the focus on physical, temporal things to thinking about spiritual, eternal things. He does it with Nicodemus. He does it with the Samaritan woman. He does it with the disciples. And here with this official, he has a physical need. His son is sick. And Jesus does a messianic miracle to prove who he is. And this Capernaum official, let's assume it's that Roman centurion, this, this official of Capernaum, this public official of Capernaum, believes the harvest of souls that Jesus had said to his disciples, which is a characteristic of the coming kingdom, you are seeing it again. An official in Capernaum has believed. And so chapter three, uh, three and four are all about the, the Messiah presenting himself as the solution to the challenges and problems of the human condition. And it's not solved by physical, temporal things. It's solved by eternal, spiritual things that only the Messiah can deliver. And Jesus did it with Nicodemus, with the Samaritan woman, and that whole community— he did it with the disciples, and it's crowned off with this remarkable miracle, a messianic miracle that deepens the faith of a Roman centurion. And I think that's probably who it is. A great chapter, isn't it? Great chapter. All right, any questions? Well, this is magnificent. I love this passage of scripture. You probably, probably realize that. Now, next week is chapter 5. Chapter 5, when we get to verse 19 through 24, is the greatest defense of monotheism in the Bible. It defends Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit as co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential members of the Trinitarian God. It's one of the greatest defenses in the Bible of, Trini of the Trinity, of a monotheistic God, one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. It's, an, it's a very deep theological chapter. So put your hats on next week at 1145 and be ready to think deeply about the things of God. It's a great, great chapter. All right. I'm assuming you're with me. I'm going to pray, and uh, then I'll let you go to enjoy this absolutely gorgeous day that the Lord has created and shared with us. I don't think it's this nice in California, Russ. I really don't. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for the Word of God, 
As Deuteronomy 8 says, man does not live by bread alone, but out of every word that comes from the mouth of the living God. Jesus illustrates that. It is, it is his words that bring transformation. It is his work that brings transformation. He is the Messiah. It's just a, absolutely astonishing what he does with that woman at Samaria. It moves her from thinking temporally and physically to thinking about eternal things. And she becomes a great missionary. She brings the whole community out, and they all come to faith and believe, even declare this is the Savior of the world. How extraordinary, how encouraging, how uplifting. And it just shows us again that you are indeed the Savior of the world. You, you, are, you are interested in bringing men and women, boys and girls, elderly people, every human being to a saving knowledge of yourself. We want to be your ambassadors of that great truth. Thank you for the privilege we have of studying together, of, of, of reflecting on and applying the word of God to our lives. May we be men of women, men of faith and men of God, men who seek to represent you well. We are involved in the harvest, directly or indirectly, in bringing souls to the Savior. May we do it with passion and with enthusiasm. So I commit these guys to you. Give them a good rest of the day and bless them and watch over them. Uh, help them to be the kind of men you want them to be. In the name of Christ, we pray this. Amen. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Take care. Good to you. Bye.